Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, culturally responsive teaching in the era of Black Lives Matter. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's show is a panel discussion from the Alaska Black Caucus's weekly community conversations. This program was recorded via video chat on August 23rd of 2020 and edited for length. We'll begin with introductions. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this week's community conversation on cultural responsiveness in the era of Black Lives Matter. My name is Celeste Hodge Groudon, and I am the president and CEO of the Alaska Black Caucus, a nonprofit organization formed in the 70s and reestablished late last year to champion the voices of Black people in the areas of economics, justice, health, and education. We have a full agenda this evening. And so we're ready to get started with our moderator, Dr. Christina Bellamy. And so without further ado, Dr. Christina Bellamy, thank you. Hi, thank you so much, Celeste. And uh, thank you everyone for listening in this evening. Um, we are planning a very robust uh, conversation for you all. I'd like to open us up by doing a land acknowledgement. I am blessed to be able to thrive and to grow on Denina land. And so we are positioned here in Anchorage on the land of the Denina. And I thank our indigenous brothers and sisters for shepherding this land for these many hundreds and hundreds of years. All right, now uh, on to our panelists. We've put together a very um, wonderful panel of knowledgeable individuals for you this evening. And so without further ado, we're just gonna go ahead here in order. Um, I'd like to welcome Anne McKay Bryson, if you could please introduce yourselves to our, uh, to our audience. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this event. I'm very honored to be here, and I'm looking forward to learning from all of you. Um, I was born and raised in Michigan and moved to Anchorage in 1979 to start my teaching career. I'm married to a former um, Anchorage Daily News journalist, proud mom of three daughters, one grandchild who's starting kindergarten this year in Anchorage and another on the way any day now here in Boston. I worked for uh, the Anchorage School District as a classroom teacher from 79, 1979 to 2006, and then moved into supporting adults in the Anchorage School District through mentoring and induction work and the second order change adult SEL work until retiring nine years ago. I continue my dedication to supporting effective, equitable, and joyful education um, through SEL Rising. Um, my clients for that, I'm a consultant to CASEL, the collaborative for academic social emotional learning with Safe Alaskans in their out of school time work with adult uh, SEL work and also with Emory University as a collaborating author and editor in their, their C uh, social emotional and ethical learning curriculum. So thank you again, uh, Christina, for having me tonight. Nice to have you, Anne. We'll move on to Mr. Cal Williams. Well, hello everybody. Thanks for having this uh, discussion and thanks indeed. I'm humbly on honored to be a part of it. My education began in the segregated South uh, before entering school. The old people in my hometown used to always value education. Even those who were illiterate would say, boy, get something in your head and they can't take it out. Hmm. You'd be walking down the street and 
old people would say, boy, what school you go to? As you grew older, they would say, boy, what college you going to? So that high expectation of us colored children, as we were called then, uh, led us to be driven. And then I was blessed to have some German Franciscan priests and nuns come and build a school just across from my house, just across mm. the street. I had 12 years of education at that highly disciplined, high expectation, uh, high encouragement, forgiving, having high expectations. So my view on education is that it occurs in the classroom and in the community. Parents must be involved. We have discipline problems with parents who had bad experiences themselves in school and don't love school like my grandmother and my grandfather. So I am encouraged to be a part of this new uh, education process where we are now having to Zoom and do all these <laughs> kinds of things. And I welcome, as I have done over the years, working with the schools. I've gone out to Wasilla, I've gone to Houston and elsewhere because a lot of those kids out there never see an African-American, um, <laughs> especially with a necktie on. So education, um, I have been involved with in the, uh, the school system, and I welcome the opportunity to continue. Thank you. Moving on, we have uh, Dr. E.J. David. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is E.J. David. I was born in the Philippines, and I moved to Utqiagvik, um, Alaska, which is, used to be called Barrow, Alaska, when I was 14 years old. My education started in the Philippines, um, and it is uh, uh, under an educational system that was highly um, influenced by the American educational system. Um, and so right from the get-go, I had um, certain, I, I, was, I was inculcated with certain views of, of American values and American standards um, of intelligence and so on. And so when I got to Utqiagvik when I was 14, mm -hmm. I went to middle school and high school there. Um, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, my wife is a Koyukon Athabascan woman from the village of Ruby by the Yukon River. And um, with her, uh, together, we have four Filipino Athabascan children. And I say Filipino um, because that's the term that, that most people know. But uh, the, Philipp the people who are from the country now known as the Philippines are actually very diverse. Um, my ethnic group specifically is Kapampangan. I'm of the Kapampangan people. Um, and, you know, that means people of the riverbanks. And so mm. my, my wife is from the Yukon River and my people are from the riverbanks. So my family is full of river people. Um, I am honored to be here. I look forward to our discussion today and I look forward to learning from all of you. Thank you. Thank you, EJ. Mr. George Martinez. Good evening everyone, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to be with you all today. Uh, my name is George Martinez. I am an educator, a community entrepreneur, and a diplomat, and I'll be wearing those hats today. And I'm also a father of two uh, young children, uh, of two in the school district. Uh, so I have two young people in the school district here in Anchorage. And, uh, and as, as my journey as an educator, I grew up in, uh, in originally in New York City, very multicultural, very diverse city, but um, even in that regard, uh, finding the lane for um, access and being able for, for me to connect as the first person in my family to uh, go on and graduate high school, let alone go on to college, graduate college and beyond, 
Uh, I was always looking for bridges of relevancy. And I brought that nature of my own journey into the work. And when I first, uh, when I first actually stepped foot here in Alaska, it was as a cultural uh, ambassador and an education an educator working with young professionals here, but specifically also bringing uh, a, a, a relevant a hip hop based curriculum into the school district that one of the organizations uh, that I was a co-founder of and a founding member of uh, developed. So I've been striving on this journey for myself and for my community for a while. Great to be here with everybody. Thank you, George. Dr. Ian Hartman. Hi, thank you. Uh, it's great to be on the panel with everybody. And I'm just honored to be in the presence of all of you for this discussion. I know it's going to be wonderful. A little bit about myself. I am a professor of history at UAA. I came to Alaska for what was supposed to be one year. I think it's a common story. This was back in 2011. And uh, long story short, I've been here for about 10 years. And it's been, it's been a wonderful ride, but it's, of course, been up and down at the university. And, uh, and I think my, my interest in this panel comes from just the, the general belief that Anchorage is a, is a particularly wonderful place and diverse place. And too often our curriculum doesn't quite match up with the people who live in Anchorage, the people who live in Alaska. And so my background as an historian is on race, ethnicity, public policy. And so my, uh, my research and my teaching kind of lie at this intersection of figuring out how it is that public policies can be sensitive to populations and diverse populations and how we can better align our educational system with the needs of diverse constituencies and how it is that we can kind of um, have our politics, I think, kind of reflect the diversity of our communities. And so that's, a, that's my, my focus, I guess, coming into this. And just, I guess, on a more personal note, I, I also have worked with Cal since he's on this panel here. We're trying <laughs> to build an archive of the history makers, and that's something that's that's ongoing, and I'll put in a plug for that, but we have some really wonderful Black history specifically in, uh, in Anchorage, but also Alaska overall, and so one of the projects that we've been embarking on over these last couple of years is to really raise the profile of that and, and allow people to understand that uh, that Anchorage has this this incredible history generally, but Black history specifically has just been very underrepresented. And I think if uh, if uh, you know we can we can all partner to raise the profile of that, then we would have done something uh, something right. So that's just a little bit about me. But again, happy to be here and honored to be uh, with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And last but certainly not least, Margot Bellamy. Thank you. I am I'm Margot Bellamy, and uh, I've. Uh, I'm a retired edu educator, and I, I guess I feel really blessed because education was not just a career for me. Uh, it was all, it's also the way that I uh, serve others. And so uh, I'm happy to be here tonight. Um, I think I've probably held every uh, position there is to hold in education. <laughs> so I have, I bring that perspective, a lot of perspectives to the panel. I also have a grandma. And I had two kids that went through the Anchorage School District. I'm here tonight as myself. I'm not representing uh, the Anchorage School Board. However, uh, I am. that is one of the ways that I also serve. So uh, I am looking forward to uh, uh, engaging. I, I, I really don't, I wanna hear from everybody on the panel. I don't necessarily want to talk. So, uh, but I'll do whatever the moderator tells me to do tonight. Thank you. And that's, uh, that's rare because that's my mom. So she tells me what to do most of the time. So here we go. Uh, 
All right, great. And that um, cherub you heard in the background, of course, was my son. He's with Nani and Papa today. So thank you very much, Margo. All right. Well, um, for those who may have just joined, I'm uh, Dr. Christina Bellamy. I was born and raised here in Anchorage. I am an educator. Um, I am also a very joyful disruptor of systems of oppression, the status quo, and things that continue to create barriers for learning and opportunity for people of uh, underrepresented communities. Um, also, I am the mother of a brown little boy, and that is my passion, and that is why I continue to fight and do the work that I do. So one of the things that I, uh, we wanted to do was to really just ground ourselves in a working definition of cultural responsiveness for this evening's panel. So Cambridge is very clear that they define culturally responsiveness as the ability to understand and consider the cultural backgrounds of the people that you teach or that you provide services to. So in this respect, our definition of cultural responsiveness is not just pinned in education, it is actually pinned in human interaction and experience, right? If we follow Cambridge's definition. One that I truly appreciate here um, from the uh, National Center for Cultural Responsive Education Systems is such that it is the ability to learn from, right? And to relate respectfully with people not only from your culture, but from those around as well. I think the key here for me as an educator is the ability to learn from. It is a two-way street. Um, we have never arrived when we talk about uh, cult work that is culturally responsive, um, culturally agile. We've never, ever arrived. We get very, very close, and we, it is an iterative process that we continue on um, over and over again. And so what we'll be talking about um, today is how this learning from the cultures around us and the people that we provide service to or that um, are in our care um, is around this movement called Black Lives Matter. So we're going to start the portion of our uh, panel um, with uh, questions from our panelists. All right, so this question is actually for all panelists. And remember guys, this is a conversation. So as much as I'm gonna try to direct uh, some questions to certain panelists, please um, let me know, hey, Christina, I wanna add something to that. Or, or if you, know, you have a thought that comes uh, a little bit later on, then, then chime in, please. Um, but for our panelists, in your context and work, what does cultural responsiveness mean to you? We'll go ahead and start with Margo, since I see you in the square first. Sure. So in the context of, uh, of, of my work and my life, um, cultural responsiveness means that I am aware, I'm understanding, um, and that I am forever trying to, I don't know everything there is about everybody's culture, but I absolutely try very hard uh, to understand and to be respectful and understanding. Thank you. Let's go to Anne. Well, my daily work, um, I would say that cultural responsiveness is both a mindset and intentional practices in teaching that recognize the importance of including students' cultures in every aspect of learning, building on individual and cultural experiences and on students' prior knowledge and what they bring, um, bring with them to the educational community. 
it's really what do students know and care about? And how do they see this reflected in their school community and in our classroom practices? How are they fully supported to bring their whole selves into the school community with a confidence that this will be very much welcomed and relished? This requires that all of us and each of us um, be culturally competent and have a deep awareness of our own cultural identity and our own views about differences and um, embracing our own ability to learn and build on the wide variety of cultural and community norms that our students and those who care for them bring to school with them. Thank you. EJ. Yeah, so for me, as a, as a professor, um, being culturally responsive means listening to my students uh, and trying my best to, to know and understand um, not just current events and how the current climate might be impacting my students, but also um, the history, um, mm. you know, the, the history of what uh, many of my students um, and their ancestors and their communities may have gone through. Um, and also understanding that, um, you know, it's impossible for me to know everything about my students. And so reminding myself that I need to remain uh, humble. So, so cultural humility, I think, uh, is an important aspect of, of my work, you know, to always remember that I am perpetually uh, learning, you know, but at the same time, you know, make sure that I do not put the, the responsibility of, of having to educate me and having to teach me on my students. Hmm. Um, so, so, you know, reminding myself that I can need to continue doing the work. Thank you. Cal. Well, currently I attend St. Anthony's Catholic Church. We've got a Filipino priest, a Samoan choir, a white folk choir. I lead the gospel Filipino choir. Uh, so we're surrounded. We got Sudanese and everybody and we do immigrations work there. I'm mm -hmm. imbued in cultural uh, interchange constantly, currently. When I first got to Alaska, uh, I well, shortly after getting to Alaska, I was a supervisor over Julius Pleasant, a strong, uh, articulate, and well uh, writer. He wrote for the Anchorage Times, native gentleman who gave me a crash course in cultural exchange. And particularly, one of the greatest things that I learned was to allow silence, thoughtfulness, and pause between words. Thank you, Cal. George? Yes, thank you. Um, I think about this uh, question uh, with respect to uh, the nature of my diplomatic work and, uh, and how really cultural responsiveness is the foundation of being able to build authentic connections uh, across, uh, across differences, across uh, you know, diverse communities. So I think about it from that perspective. And then through the work of the, uh, the Alaska Humanities Forum, where I'm the director of leadership programs and youth programs, you know, the Humanities Forum is, is, is really focused on creating uh, and growing community through connections and, and the idea of, of creating space for where those connections could live, uh, really rely on uh, being authentic and, uh, and on also relying on that uh, not being lazy. When I think of uh, bringing uh, cultural responsiveness work to work, it's, it really is about um, you know, like the nature of recognizing that we don't need to, uh, to try to force square pegs into round holes or use that as an analogy anymore. 
that we can actually be thoughtful and um, and and make sure that the the young people or the the communities that we engage with are heard, seen, and respected in the way curriculum, in the way uh, lessons are built, in the way the invitation to participate in the exchange of ideas are. So I, that's the context of my current work and the way I see this question. Here, here, here. Thank you. And um, Ian. Thanks. Yeah, like EJ, I I am at the university and. UAA, for, for those who aren't uh, maybe as familiar with the institution, it's, it's an open enrollment institution, which creates this really wonderful opportunity to work with students from all backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, all ages. I, I mean, there truly is a diversity of students in, in any number of ways. And I think to approach cultural responsiveness to me is to kind of, one, to recognize my own privilege walking into the classroom, frankly, kind of where I'm coming from in my uh, in my own kind of education, my pathway through life and understanding that, that very often the students I am teaching have, have maybe uh, are doing things differently than I have done them. And, and that's, that's important, I think, to recognize. And um, the students need to, need to see representation in the curriculum, I think, and there, there needs to be a sense of uh, empowerment. And so um, in the the day to day, I think that that really means as a as a faculty member to ensure that students feel as though they're represented. They feel as though that they're they can relate to the material, and they also and you also have to demonstrate empathy. I think something as basic as understanding that students are going to some of them are going to have have had some rough patches, and you have to understand that some of them are going to be able to coast through just fine. And, and frankly, it doesn't really matter who's at the front of the classroom. They're going to be they're going to be ready to go. And so I, I think that's been my, my primary instinct, I guess, with cultural responsiveness is to just be, be very acutely aware of the way in which the, the students are going to, to relate to the college experience, but also uh, how that experience is really shaped by a whole kind of installation of their, their backgrounds, where they're coming from, what they've experienced in life. And, and that's something that I, I, I try to be quite mindful of. Thank you all for the panelists. I, I'm jotting down these words that keep coming up in various ways in your responses, words um, such as uh, humble or humility, um, active, right? So being culturally responsive requires action, whether that action is learning more for yourself. Uh, I heard someone say to create space um, within um, those structures within your care to be able to um, have people feel seen and heard and included. Um, and then Cal, this um, if we go to the next question, I'm gonna start with you for this question because it, you talked about um, intentional, so, uh, being very intentional. And you know, I, I consider you to be one of the you know, knowledge bearers of the African-American experience in the state of Alaska. I mean, you've, you've been here for a time and have spent a great deal of your career um, advocating and intentionally elevating those the, the needs of, of Black Alaskans and people that find themselves here. So talk to me about how cultural barriers show up in your work and your learning and give us an example of that. Well, one of the, the quickest that I can bring is that um, I was director of the Neighborhood Crime Watch program and I was of uh, the boss. And I was up at night working and trying to figure out how to do the FICA and the FUDA and keep my employees paid. And mm -hmm. I had one employee who 
only acknowledged me as the boss when I was handing him a check. Hmm. Any other time that I suggested or asked him to do something, he would have a different way of doing it or a better way of doing it. He could never, ever in his mind and his privilege, if you will, accept a black man as his boss and as being in charge. So that was the systemic racism that I faced more than, you know, work than getting from employers was, was this racism coming from my employee. Hmm. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's about as, as, you know, blatant as I can tell you about. It. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And so what I'm wondering, EJ, is in this context of a cultural barrier in a learning environment, how has that, how have you seen that show up at the university level in your experience? Yeah, thank you. Um, so for me, generally, uh, I see it in, in, in that we in the university and not just UAA, but I think universities generally, uh, we all try to live up to a Western based, to a set of Western based requirements. Um, criteria. Um, you know, we try to, especially as, you know, as people of color, we try to survive and thrive in a system that has equated intelligence uh, with really the knowledge of what white folks have determined to be important. Um, you know, it is a system that arose from Western values, uh, many of which, you know, are not natural to me. And in fact, many of them are contradictory to the values of my own culture. Um, you know, so for example, in this context, we value competition um, versus collaboration. Um, we, yeah. you know, we encourage our students, you know, to stand out um, versus, you know, to, to versus moving together, you know, as a group, you know. So, so as a professor, uh, so a little bit more specific here, as a professor, um, you know, my promotion, my tenure uh, is based on, you know, the number of publications that I get. Um, and so, you know, the, the systems are not made to reward and encourage work that is based on establishing long-term relationships and trust with the communities that we work with. You know, so as, as you provided earlier with the definition of your culturally, of cultural responsiveness, you know, the systems in, in universities really are not made to reward work that is culturally responsive, you know, work that is about learning from and respectfully relating with people. Um, so, you know, instead what is rewarded are research that is quick, right? Because you need to publish mm. fast. Um, and many times that kind of work is not the most culturally grounded and appropriate, right? Mm. So that so that's a specific example there. So George, I saw your head nodding and I was gonna I was gonna pivot somewhere else, but I want you to say what what are you thinking as EJ makes those statements? Yeah, no, I was thinking of um of of the specifically with respect to education and um and in that context of a classroom. And thinking of the work that educators have to do uh, and, and, and that we're encouraging to do, I'm just thinking of the purpose of that classroom, like so that the barrier of, of an educator, uh, if, they're, if they're focused on making sure that, uh, that people are driven into boxes, into uh, a, normative, a normative culture, then, then I think that we, we limit growth and authentic growth of an individual. So as an educator, I think to myself, or if my intention is to is to really uh, help develop uh, uh, the conditions for authentic growth, for a, a real learning opportunity for everyone in the in the learning space. Then, I, then I think to myself that the the value of, of again I, and go back to not being lazy and making sure people are seen, heard, and understood is is paramount, and it becomes not optional. 
right? Because it, it's mm-hmm. not an optional thing to be uh, effective as an educator in my mind. It, it, it should be paramount as the intention and, uh, and effectiveness comes from the bridge of understanding, essentially, to being able to, to, to deliver content and being able to, uh, to grow from the, 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 the response of students. So mm-hmm. I, I just think of that nature of the intention of the classroom. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is, uh, you know, we have to question with respect to uh, how we reorganize the classroom to get the most impact of growth for our, for our, our students. That's scary, George. Like what you're talking about, that's scary because that requires me to be vulnerable in a way that I may or may not be comfortable with, right? Vulnerable yeah. in that I don't know, right? Maybe I've never, maybe my privilege has not allowed me to experience anything different than what I know. Here's the, here's the next one. And, and Margo, I'm going to come to you first for this one. So race and identity are important elements and not just teaching and learning and working, but really like in life that we've talked about um, what cultural responsiveness is, but what kind of strategies or practices or advice would you give, I will say humans, not just educators or employers, right? Um, and and I really want you to come at this. I know for many years, you were the um, executive director of equal opportunity for the school district. You've worked closely with the Equal Rights Commission. You are a trainer for the National Coalition Building Institute. Help, help lead us off with this, uh, with a response. What are, you, what are you thinking with this question? I think the first thing is that we have to be very careful that we don't, you know, we have the legal protections that we have under the law, all right? Those that we, that we will, you know, we are protected by law from being discriminated against, being harassed, whether that's in school or in the workplace. But you know, but that does not, that is not the only, that can't be the only thing that drives how we treat each other. And so I think uh, um, a lot of businesses uh, or employers uh, will, will go with the legal and they don't really look to, to, uh, to, to even consider what makes uh, the individual the individual. So there's a question in the chat about race. Uh, a gentleman asked uh, about race, you know, the difference between race and culture. Uh, whether you are sitting in a classroom or whether you are uh, and you are a, 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 an emerging learner or whether you are in a work environment, your race and your, your identity, you don't get to leave it at the door. You don't get to, but we have been required, we require kids to step into classrooms that are um, not, not focused on them, on, on who they are, all right? Classrooms are... Uh, part of a bigger institution, but it's the teachers, it's the teachers and those employees or employers who who have to go beyond just um, making sure that people have, you know, that they're employed or they're getting educated. Because how I learn is, is so attached to my identity. And if mm-hmm. I don't see myself, if I don't see successful people who look like me around me, I'm not saying I can't be successful or kids can't be successful, but uh, so my advice, long story short, would be pay attention to what is happening around you. Uh, pay attention to who, uh, who is represented in your circle, in your classroom, in your office, but then also recognize who's missing. That for me is the most important piece. It's not just who shows up, but who is missing. And then, and so then if we are really culturally responsive and if we are 
really trying to create environments where people are uh, valued, respected, and where they want to belong, then we would we, we would we would do things a little bit differently. I think in our okay. Country. I'd like to talk about who's missing mm -hmm. in the Anchorage School District. The person or people that are missing are people who look like the students. The mm -hmm. students don't see in the staff and administration themselves. When I went to school, I saw black principals and black educators, though I went to a Catholic school, as I told you before, where all of my teachers were white, white nuns, white priests, all of the students were black. But in the community, we talked, somebody asked about what is the difference in race and culture? Mm -hmm. I'm black, well, or was colored or Negro or whatever back in those days. But my grandmother was um, more economically uh, advantaged than my my father's mother was more economically advantaged than my mother's mother. So there were two cultures right there. My grandmother on my father's side was highfalutin and a practical nurse and lived on the north side of town. My grandmother on the other side was poor and lived in an alley. In that alley, I learned a great deal about collaboration and all those people pulling together with two outhouses among 10 buildings and two hydrants among 10 to do. I saw those people slaughter a hog and share the meat. I learned the culture down in that alley that I didn't learn up on Briard Street. So I'm black, but I had two cultures running through me and then Catholicism across the street. Franciscan order saying mm. you don't suck up to nobody and you don't look down on anybody. Mm. So you develop your culture from your, the surroundings. And what we mm. need in the school district is if not teachers, lay people of different ethnic backgrounds having access to the students. We need more black males, and I don't want to get sexist, but those students need to see black males. I go into those schools out in those hinterlands just for that purpose. They might have one black student in Palmer. It's an advantage for those white students to see me standing there with a necktie on. And it's experience, right? It's an experience as well as the, the connection, right? The very human part of what we're talking about ultimately is human connection and how we do that in a way that is that is humble, that is inviting, is welcoming, that that comes from a place of not knowing, right, but having an experience with others. I just wanted to chime in on on just a, a, a thought as well about, again, back to intentionality of the role of educators and, and, the, and, the, and the idea of being effective, I think is really important. So I wanted to point out that like the Humanities Forum, for example, mm -hmm. we participate in a C3 program creating cultural competency. And this is particularly for, for teachers who are coming into rural Alaska from an outside context. And, 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 and the, the, the point of uh, the, the, the C3 program and that creating cultural competency is to provide a better opportunity for the teachers to, uh, to thrive in their environment, for the students to get out of it. But we also see the effectiveness. So I just wanted to point out that mm -hmm. we, there's data that can show effectiveness at a system level. So we just don't have to leave it anecdotally. Teachers who, who are, are three times more likely to stay for another year in rural Alaska teaching um, and, 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 and thrive in that role if they have a foundation that gives them some core cultural competency learning earlier prior to going into uh, these, these communities where there is this such great difference of experience and cultural backgrounds. 
So there's a functionality <laughs> to it that I want to make sure that folks who are listening also can recognize there are ways to evaluate the effectiveness of these strategies in both the, uh, the learning outcomes and then the, uh, the retention of students and faculty. And faculty. Yes, that is very important. We're, we're moving right along and couldn't have planned this any better. You guys are falling right in line with where my thought process was when we were trying to create some questions. So we've, we've now, you know, talked about, um, you know, many things, personal um, experiences. Um, we've talked about the advisement that, that, that um, we could give. I want to really start to talk about actually kind of some of the, the psychological and, and, and historical importance of being able to access one's kind of true and authentic history and culture. And EJ, I'm going to start with you. Um, you had talked about, you know, shared some of your upbringing and some of the different uh, constructs, westernized constructs, particularly at the university level. So um, how should this, how could that learning and those experiences that you talked about how could that help shift our institutions or help shift the, the um, some thinking that we may have as individuals? Well, you know, just to contextualize this um, in a much larger way um, to begin with, I mean, for, for, for many, you know, people of color, you know, black and indigenous peoples, uh, this country has always been, um, you know, just a dangerous, traumatizing place. Um, yeah. You know, our, our daily lives can be traumatic because of the racism that permeates every system and institutions in this country, including the educational system, right? And so we are not, in, in, in addition to that, you know, we are not just worried about the racism that we might directly face, but we are also uh, burdened by the, the racism that our ancestors face, right? So there's historical racism as well. There's historical trauma as well, you know, and the effects of historical trauma, you know, is very real. Um, they mm -hmm. are tangible. Um, they can literally kill us. Right. So so we are affected by both contemporary racism and and historical racism and the and the resulting worries and anxieties and paranoia and depression and sense of sense of helplessness, sense of hopelessness, uh, sense of defeat. You know, they are still very damaging to us. You know, it damages our well-being, our self-esteem, our mental health, our physical health, our ability to do our jobs, our ability to do our schoolwork, our ability to go to school. Um, so if we truly genuinely want to be culturally responsive, right, then we must address the racism in, in, in all aspects of society because it is the racism that, that you know, really affects peoples of color every day. Um, but in our schools, you know, our true history is not just forgotten or erased, you know, it is even distorted and it's, it's, it's distorted in a way that dehumanizes us, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so for our schools then, if we truly genuinely care about our students' well-being and school performance, uh, then we will prioritize addressing racism because, you know, it is the root of why so many students are struggling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ian, I want to hear from you on this as well. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would second the points EJ made. I mean, it was a brilliant commentary. And I'd, I'd only add that I think when thinking about history, it, you know, you, you, you kind of, you can go down a couple different pathways here. And I think when when we're trying to impart a narrative on on students, uh, the there's kind of there's there's maybe two two separate ways that I, I see this going too often, and the first way is which is to just really do violence to students by by not talking about certain things or not really mm -hmm. talking about the history of racism, the history of land theft, um, the history of slavery, all of this, and and it's uh, and that happens, and I think it's it's a huge risk, and I think that's something that we need to be aware of, and and just kind of his basic cultural competency move away. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I do sometimes, I, I wonder if, if we have to, 
you have to teach the history of racism and the foundations of the country, but you also have to teach resistance and resilience. And so, you know, I, I think when you when we're when we're trying to to really grapple with history and grapple with trauma, we want to be careful to emphasize the history of racism and systemic racism and and the way in which these these structures kind of loop through the past and into the present. But we also need to be very careful, I think, to highlight um, resistance to those same systems and to really make mm -hmm. sure that those who uh, uh, who have resisted are are at the forefront of a narrative. You know, I mean, by, by all means, we talk about we talk about slavery, but we talk about Nat Turner, right? Um, we just had the the Democratic National Convention. We talk about the the history of racism in politics, but we talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So I, I think there's um, there's an opportunity there to do both of these things at once, which is to engage a serious substantive discussion about uh, about race and trauma, but to also do so in a way that that uh, that allows for that empowerment. And I think that that's really institutionally, at least, I think that's what we can do individually. Um, I, I hope we can do that uh, as well. But that would be, I think, maybe a, a good place to start. Well, that's the blessing of George Floyd. Uh, for a while, I was beginning to feel that I was a dinosaur going around talking about there is racism and people were telling me, no, 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 that was back in your day, Cal. Mm. Uh, racism has been resolved. But then after people witnessed that eight minutes and 40 seconds, they started saying, well, perhaps racism does exist. And the door of conversations have uh, been open again. I've lost friends in having that conversation, but you know, they were obviously associates and not mm -hmm. friends. I welcome mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, before we move on, I wanted to see if there were any other thoughts from our panelists, because um, I want to, yes. trauma is coming up and I want to talk about the trauma that is associated with this. Can I, can I say um, something for 30 seconds, Christina? Please do. Please yeah, do. Yeah. This is a so conversation. As, as Margot, Cal, and Ian mentioned, you know, I think seeing oneself and, and one's own group and one's own people in the curriculum, whether it be history, science, you know, arts, literature, you know, they can, that's psychologically uh, powerful, right? It is definitely empowering. Um, it lets, you know, people know, students know that they are, you know, a big part of this country, a big part of this world, you know, that they and their ancestors and their people, you know, have significantly contributed, right? And have resisted <laughs> and have won and have succeeded. Um, mm -hmm, as Ian mm -hmm. uh, mentioned, that's, that's empowering, you know? So, so it helps psychologically. But in addition to, to all of that, I think it also, you know, a, a, an accurate um, under, uh, and critical understanding of, of history also allows people to see the connections between themselves and other cultural groups, right? That, that, you know, that you're, you know, you all struggled, we struggled, you know, this people, you know, all the way from across the world struggled and the struggles are similar, right? <laughs> what are we all fighting against, right? So, so it, it actually can build um, or actually can spark like unity and solidarity and collaboration between different groups of people as well. So, mm -hmm. so it can be empowering in that sense also. You know, and, Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, Christina, I just wanted to chime, uh, chime in like, the nature, of the, the nature of knowing one's true authentic self is not a point in time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's also a process that people are going through at every at every stage of, of one's life. I mean, it's still revealing to ourselves, even as adults. I mean, a lot of folks whose history wasn't necessarily connected to their childhood are searching in their adulthood. Right. So access, mm -hmm. assessing one's true and authentic history and culture, I just think is, you know, the grace for learning about that, I think, is important. And I just keep going back to it every as I keep hearing the difference between our capacity to be responsive and the, and, and the rigidity of the past, 
right? And, and so I just, I, I, I just really believe that there's a great opportunity here for us to think of this as a reset conversation, um, especially through the lens of recognizing that it is really multiple realities that make up our collective truth. And so mm -hmm. the space mm -hmm. for, for, those, for those, those experiences and those truths to live uh, and to be heard and seen do matter for, um, for the conversation and for uh, recognition and for healing. You know, we have the capacity to have the room now. Uh, so it really isn't, in my mind, a question of can we achieve this? It really is about whether or not Man. we're going to commit to doing the work of, of, of recognizing that that's where we are in the space of learning and growth. I will ask this question, though, and then I'll come right back to you, Cal. So, and I'm, you know, again, as an educator, you know, I learned about the common school error, right? I learned about how public education became a thing in this country, and it was not to provide opportunity to all. It was to sort, right? Um, wealthy landowners' kids got free education. If you had any kind of um, mental incapacity or were the wrong color or of the wrong caste, you were sent to institutions and um, the rest of the of, of kids didn't uh, didn't get an education. It wasn't it wasn't for them. And so, George, you mentioned putting a, a square peg in a round hole. And so there's this part of me as an educator that's like, until we blow this up and build it back differently. Right. We're going to continue coming into this consistent struggle because we are perpetuating a system that was never built for anything other than white kids, because that was what it was built on, right? So, you know, there's this part of having to tear down to build up. However, there's also this part with having to understand those systems of oppression, understand the interconnected nature of them, and to be strategic about breaking them down. So it's not just blow up to blow up, right? Right. I mean, right. Let me let me chime let me chime into just to, to piggyback right off of you. The way I the way I see it is the difference between the assembly line education or on demand. The the ability mm -hmm. to be uh, relevant on demand to where our students are today is we have that capacity. At one point in time, you may have not had that capacity. So it was a it was maybe a function of also the the limitations that it was the, the assembly line was essentially driving conformity, right? Mm -hmm. and, and conformity was the high value of the assembly line because every product kind of is going to look the same, you're gonna leave. And so the diversity of, of recognizing the different ways that people learn, mm -hmm. let alone how they grow, was never really core to the component of, the, of pedagogy at that point. So I think your right. point is well taken. But now the difference is between conforming or empowering. And, and when we talk about culturally responsive and we talked about adapting uh, educational models now, we're mm -hmm. essentially talking about being, uh, being on the edge of empowering our students uh, rather than having them uh, be on a conforming assembly line production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Cal. Uh, I was just wanted to say that we had a Freedom House over on Carlick Street between 13th and 14th back in 1968 and mm -hmm. young people used to meet over there daily and read Soul on Ice, Seize the Time, the Black Panther Movement, Che Guevara, et cetera. We had that in this town at one point, right there back in the 60s. And how long was that around, Cal? I, I don't, I, that was- well, For about two years. The, the, <laughs> the house that we had now is that house on Carlock where you see the chicken uh, coops there. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. That, used to be, that used to be called the Freedom House. 
Jakebi oh, wow. Kawazi, Cal Williams, Herb uh, Hilton, who had the, the movement. Oh, Matthew A. Henson, the Matthew A. Mm. Henson Society. Uh, and the Black Caucus later came along. But prior to all of that, we had these groups, radicals though we were, uh, <laughs> reading those kind of materials and learning our history and our culture and sharing it and challenging each other. Man, you haven't finished the book yet? What's wrong with you? So. <laughs> right, and I, and I grew up with that, with that culture of, of, of meeting and, and, and of, of sharpening and refining in our community through the challenge of, of our own intellect uh, with the readings and books. So yeah, there was, mm -hmm, it's about, mm -hmm. about community and freedom schools. There, was a, there is a model of yeah, that. Yeah, there and is Thank you, Cal, for bringing that up. Yeah. And what I we're going to move on to this next question because I really want to get some different voices um, into this. So, Anne, I want to start with you and thinking about, you know, culturally responsiveness and thinking about um, the SEL work that you helped birth in the Anchorage School District and um, really in the state and, the, and helping to bring light to trauma and trauma informed practices. Um, how do you find that um, environments that are not just sensitive to SEL, which is social emotional learning, right? And, and trauma, how do you find that these culturally responsive environments support both the students and um, teachers? And I'll say students and teachers for you. And then Margo, I'm going to come to you for more of a workplace uh, organizational culture um, flavor to this question. So we'll start with you, Anne. If it's all right, I'd like to just hop back for a moment to um, the sort of strategies conversation that we we're having earlier, because I've heard so many people speak to um, the need for students to really see themselves at at school and um, in our learning. And so I'd put in a plug for um, everywhere, but certainly in an Anchorage in our very multicultural district to truly develop ethnic studies courses and make them um, reflective of the histories that are carried in our district and make them count for credit. Um, and to do- uh, Acquire it. To truly develop uh, ethnic studies courses, they have to be developed by people within that community. So that means recruiting, hiring, uh, sustaining, supporting uh, teachers who are black teachers, indigenous uh, educators, people of color um, in across the board so that our school district looks more like our population and um, speaks to that. So I'm, I'm gonna now pivot quickly because I, I know that was a lot of, conversation there. About you're something. good. You're, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Social and emotional learning. Um, it's, it has been around for, uh, you know, uh, uh, 25 years and um, thankfully is evolving. Social and emotional learning is really a, it's a habit of practice. It's a lifelong process for developing and nurturing competency in the ways that we know and share ourselves and how we understand and interact with others. And um, currently the work around uh, social emotional learning is really talking about transformative SEL and uh, Dr. Rob Jagers and others in a, um, in a paper in this last year have talked about transformative SEL is a process where students and teachers build strong respectful relationships founded on an appreciation of similarities and differences, learn to critically examine root causes of inequity and develop collaborative solutions to community and social pro problems. So to do that, Christina, you asked me to think about both students and adults. 
And mm-hmm. really what we need is very, very much the same for both opportunities for self-reflection, self-awareness, thinking about who are we, where do we come from? What am I bringing with me? How is what I'm doing impacting others? And to really do that as human beings in a shared educational environment. I'm gonna stop there because there's so Okay, go ahead. Well, let me say to Anne, you know, we've heard all these years, we can't find uh, those people and they don't apply. And oh, we can't help with, where do we get them from? In the meantime, use lay people, bring in traditional healers, et cetera, to allow these uh, students to have access uh, and then wait for Godot for the real deal to come along. But in the meantime, let me and others go into the schools and have access, well, Zoom or whatever, and uh, <laughs> give them the, the moral stories that I have written that gives uh, lessons on nonviolence, honesty, integrity, not bullying, et cetera. I've written these stories, I present them in in formats and stuff, and there are many other people who do that same kind of work. Give us access. I'm gonna say, you know what Kyle's saying is is true. Just just consider the nature of how many artists, uh, how many diverse uh, um, specialists are brought into the classroom to Mm -hmm. uh, to add value to to lessons. So now we're not talking about uh, adding value, we're talking about fundamentally embedding it at a core at the core level, right? Intentionally at the core level. That's right. Yeah, 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 Yeah. exactly. And and pay them for it. That's right. Ah, there that part. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. No, I understand. Because and I and I say that not to be pessimistic or anything like that, but I say that because oftentimes um I've I've experienced that myself as a person of color. You know, people will they always want you to volunteer your time or to can you come do this and and we can't, but but really when when people have a skill set that you need and, and and if you have the means you know as a professional they should be compensated and so um and i say that as christina a small business owner in the state of alaska and 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 someone who has volunteered and will continue to do that you know throughout the community but i do see that there is a distinct difference of that being the mode of approach for people of color versus non-people of color. In my professional lived experience, I have I have witnessed that. Now I wanna go back to this question and I wanna bring Margo into the question because I wanna talk about this in the workplace, right? So now we're not talking necessarily about students and teachers, we're talking adult to adult. So can you talk to us about how you've seen these kind of, these intentional um, culturally responsive environments be beneficial for the adults um, and the and the relation and the culture of, of of organizations that you've you've served in. Sure, that's a, and it's a it's a great question. Now, one of the things I enjoyed most, um, you know, prior to retiring, was the opportunity to uh, work with adults, not just to solve problems relative to discrimination, harassment, though that kind of thing, but to also um, help people, help staff build environments that were welcoming, where people felt like they belonged, where they shared a common, you know, they, they just shared, they, they were, the value of sharing and uh, commonalities were uh, what was really important. So uh, adults, just like the kids, they need to be, they need opportunities to engage. Uh, we build relationships with each other, uh, talk about uh, how how things are going, makes <laughs> Jackson. You have to wait. <laughs> so I think, I think it's more. Um, it's, we want the same thing for our adults that that we want for our 
you know, for our kids. And that is a respectful environment where they feel valued. Our teachers do, a, I believe, our teachers do a great job uh, with SEL. It's ongoing. Um, it's, it includes all of the kids. Communication, you know, not just communicating to be talking, but communicating mm. where people feel like they are part of the conversation. So whatever language, I mean, we, we always talk about how many languages we speak. Uh, but we also have to be real careful and make sure that not only are we that we value that, but we've also got to support that. We've got to support uh, how we are communicating um, and, and communicate with our families uh, and uh, in a way that they really want to in the, in the, the language they want to be communicated in. Uh, the other thing uh, is, you know, just making sure it, building relationships, whether those relationships are student to student, uh, teacher to teacher. Uh, student to bus driver, whatever it is. I mean, we all have to uh, share that common language, share that common goal. And, and uh, that way, I think uh, our environments, until we get uh, people who look like our kids, I think we are on the path through SEL uh, and through other programs that we, that we have going on. Uh, I just want to see them more community, the same language that ASD is speaking, needs to somehow make its way home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which speaks to, you know, access, right? And, and thinking critically about um, how do we examine, I think one of the questions we had earlier was about looking at the barriers. This is not about checking a box. This is people work that requires some individual eyes on how we function as our, in, as our own individuals and how we create opportunities to experience the humanness and the, and, the, and the brilliance of those around us. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. That's all the time we have for you today. You just heard a discussion from the Alaska Black Caucus's weekly community conversations. The panelists discussed culturally responsive teaching in the era of Black Lives Matter. This program was recorded via video chat on August 23rd and was edited for length. For links and other episodes, head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.